You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Anyway, um, Jocelyn says I need to make a connection between a story and church. So I'd like to read from like the Bible. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13 that you're well acquainted with. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So that's a bridge. Okay, so am I good now? <laughs> All right. Anyway, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. I know most of you. I'm Jim Palmer. I've... Uh, this is my 44th year teaching, and uh, I'm lucky. I, st- uh, I still love it. And uh, last uh, 26 have been at uh, Altamont School, which is a pretty good local private school. And, uh, and what I'd like to do here is to reintroduce you to J.D. Salinger, somebody that I'm sure you're just about all acquainted with, but it's probably it may end with The Catcher in the Rye, which is just a fabulous book. I think it gets a, a bad rap. It's always uh, the leader on any banned book list uh, because of the language. It's up there top. Uh, but it's really a beautiful story about uh, about love. And Holden, who's just cursing a stream, but he's got a good heart, and he's just been kicked out of private school after private school. But he's messed up because <clears throat> his little brother, Allie, died of leukemia. And it's just... He just can't get past that. And he just has this image of he, he wants to be there at the foot of a cliff catching children falling off a cliff and just be the catcher in the rye. But somebody's got to catch him before that. And what I found out in a, in a uh, little movie, I saw, documentary I saw about uh, uh, J.D. Salinger is uh, he was at D-Day and he was in 276 consecutive days of combat including D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, and the liberation of the concentration camps. And a surprise, surprise, he had a nervous breakdown. And, uh, and so after the war, he was walking on uh, Daytona Beach, and he saw this cute little 14-year-old girl reading Wuthering Heights. And he came up and said, I'm Heathcliff. I mean, you know, the, kind of the outcast uh, anti-hero. And out of that comes uh, this... My fa- it's got to be my favorite story, which bumped out the Rocking Horse Winter, which you know takes something to bump out Malabar as number one. So I always try to start off my classes with that. But uh, something else, another little bridge to what we're doing. Somebody asked uh, Faulkner, uh, first name's not needed here, I guess, and uh, who was the best of the, his favorite of the contemporary writers? And he picked, uh, of the contemporary books, and he picked The Catch and the Rot, was his favorite. And he said basically uh, he was uh, he loved man and wished to be a part of mankind, humanity, who tried to join the human race and failed. And his problem was that when he attempted to enter the human race, there was no human race there. And if you remember Holden, everybody, Stradlatter and English teacher, everybody's are, are phonies. Everywhere he turns is just a phony. And then he ends this marvelous letter. This was an interview. He said, uh, that is the young writer's dilemma, as I said. Not just his, but all our problems is to save mankind from being desold as the stallion or boar or bull is gelded, to save the individual from anonymity before it is too late, and humanity has vanished from the animal called man. And who better to save man's humanity than the writer, the poet, the artist, since who should fear the loss of it more since the humanity of man 
is the artist's lifeblood. It's pretty good just off the top of your head, isn't it, right? So anyway, well, let me, uh, uh, I won't be able to do the whole thing, but this is called Foresme with Love and Squalor. And so I think this is a great example of what Faulkner's saying is the writers <coughs> are fighting to save our souls. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure, right? Just recently, by airmail, I received an invitation to a wedding that will take place in England on April the 18th. It's important now that we're going to start off with a, with a wedding and you watch for how much foreshadowing you can see in this story, okay? It happens to be a wedding I'd give a lot to be able to get to. Sorry, I'm a roamer when I, I can't. Can't stay still. And when the invitation first arrived, I thought it might just be possible for me to make the trip abroad by plane. Expenses be hanged. However, I've since discussed the matter rather extensively with my wife, a breathtakingly level-headed girl, and we've just <laughs> euphemism, and we've decided against it. For one thing, I'd completely forgotten that my mother-in-law is looking forward to, to to spending the last two weeks in April with us. I don't. I really don't get to see Mother Grincher terribly often. Isn't that a great name for a monster-in-law, right? At the same time, all the same, though, when, wherever I happen to be, I don't think I'm the type that doesn't even lift a finger to prevent a wedding from flatting. Accordingly, I've gone ahead and jotted down a few revealing notes on the bride as I knew her almost six years ago. So the whole story's a flashback. If any notes should if my notes should cause the groom, whom I haven't met, an uneasy moment or two, so much the better. Nobody's aiming to please here, more really to edify, to instruct. In April of 1944, just before what? What's going on in the world in England, right before June 6th, right before D-Day, right? I was among, which he participated in, I was among some 60 American enlisted men who took a rather specialized pre-invasion training course directed by British intelligence in Devon, England. And there's about 60 of us. We were all essentially letter-writing types. Rainy days, I sat in a dry place and read a book. At seven, let's see, so it's the last night, he's, and he's with the Airborne Division, so I'm sure he's with the 82nd or 101st, those first ones in. I imagine 19-year-old boys dropping out of the sky 10,000 feet at night to liberate a country they've never seen before against people who are doing their best to kill them. I mean, it's just amazing what, what they did there. Anyway, he synchronizes his wristwatch, and he goes down to the center of the town and stops in front of a church, and it looks, and there's a children's choir practice. So he looks in there, and he scans the children's faces, and he noticed one child in particular. She was about 13. There's the Daytona Beach girl, right? With straight ash blonde hair of earlobe length, and uh, her face was distinctly separate from the, uh, all the other children's voices. It had the best upper register, the sweetest sounding, the surest, and it automatically led the way. So he listens for a while, and he gets up, and he goes to a pub to eat, and it's raining, and he goes in there, and <clears throat> he's looking at some old letters, and he looks up, and there's the girl comes in with her governess, and a very small boy, unmistakably her brother, and... Uh, Let's see, the boy was about five, an expression of a born heller. It's like that, that kid when you're a teenager, whatever you're getting paid to, to babysit for him is not enough. I mean, the kids, he's just, uh, just out, out of control, right? Anyway, so the only time he'd settle down is when his sister talked to him, okay? Anyway, the choir member saw me staring over at her party. She stared back at me and then gave me a small smile. It's oddly radiant. I smiled back. The next thing I knew, the young lady was standing with enviable poise beside my table. 
I asked her if she'd care to join me. Thank you, she said, perhaps for just a fraction of a moment. I got up and drew a chair for her, the one opposite me, and she sat down on the forward quarter of it, keeping her spine easily and beautifully straight. Now she's got perfect posture, and we're going to find out why. Um, anyway, so I, I, instantly she closed her hands. Her nails were bitten down to the quick. Now you see, the narrator is a writer, so he notices that, that detail there that the, uh, Van Gogh said, exaggerate the essential and leave the obvious vague, which pertains not just to art, but to writing. So when you're writing a story, don't give a lot of mundane details. Pick, pick the one thing that's different. Um, just a little side note, Joss and I were having dinner with a friend a while back at Highlands. Is after the night after we listened to Pat Conroy speak. And we're with uh, uh, a good friend of ours who runs a B&B in Montevallo. And she had two friends who were teachers and writers at the University of Montevallo. And, sp- and they were strangers to us. And we would spend about an hour uh, chit-chatting and stuff. And then the, the, the wife, who was a writer, stared at my eyebrows. I got from Dad. And uh, she said, what did you say your last name was? I said, Palmer, is your dad a doctor? Yes, ma'am. He saved our child's life one time. I said, whoa. I've heard that before, but it never gets old, right? And so anyway, uh, you'll like this story, so Doc. And uh, anyway, she was a little, poor little girl. Her, uh, her veins had collapsed and nobody could stick her, but dad could stick you and nobody else could. He knew there's, there's a vein going on the top of your head. So he, he got a needle in and got an IV in and, and saved her life. So anyway, there's look that writer again seeing that little detail. Okay, but he notices that. Uh, She was wearing a wristwatch, a military-looking one. It looked rather like a navigator's chronograph. Its face was much too large for her slender wrist. You were at choir practice, she said. I saw you. You're the 11th American I've met. Now, she's really precise, as we say. You go to that secret intelligence school down on on the hill, don't you? As security-minded as the next one, I replied I was visiting Devonshire for my health. Really, she said. I wasn't quite born yesterday, you know. <clears throat> and then she asked, are you married? I said, I was. Are you very deeply in love with your wife? Or am I being too personal? I said that when she was, I'd speak up. I remember wanting to do something about that enormous face wristwatch she was wearing. Perhaps suggest you try wearing it around her waist. <laughs> Usually I'm not terribly gregarious. Now, she has a great vocabulary, and we'll find that out why that is too, and looked over at me to see if I knew the meaning of the word. I didn't give her a sign, though, one way or the other. I purely came over because I thought you looked extremely lonely, and we'll find she is too. You have an extremely sensitive face. I said she was right, that I had been feeling lonely, and I was very glad she'd come over. I'm training myself to be more compassionate. I remember that. That'll be on the test, okay? I'm training myself to be more compassionate. My aunt says I'm a terribly cold person. I live with my aunt. She's an extremely kind person. Since the death of my mother, oh, bless her heart, we understand fingernails, right? She doesn't have a mother. She's done everything within her power to make Charles and me feel adjusted. Mother's an extremely intelligent person, quite sensuous in many ways. Do you find me terribly cold? I told her, absolutely not. Very much the contrary, in fact. I told her my name and asked her for hers. She hesitated. My first name is Esme. I don't think I shall tell you my full name for the moment. I have a title, and you may just be impressed by titles. Americans are, you know, so she's not just British, but aristocracy, okay? 
Uh, and then Charles gazed back at me with his immense green eyes, more foreshadowing. Green eyes, as I tell my students, it's a magical color. Remember, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and elves and all that stuff, right? Okay, his name is Charles, said Esme. He's extremely brilliant for his age. Well, he certainly has green eyes, haven't you, Charles? He misses our father very much. He was S-L-A-I-N in North Africa. Bless her heart, they're orphans. No, I chew my nails too. And she spells the name not to upset him, right? I expressed regret to hear it. I look, shifting the topic, I look exactly like my father. She went on biting at her cuticle. Think about her dad. You'll find she just adored her daddy. My mother was quite a passionate woman. She was an extrovert. Father was an introvert. They were, I mean, to be quite candid, father needed more of an intellectual companion than mother was. He was an extremely gifted genius. So we see that, that she's, um, just adores him. And that's why her vocabulary is so good, right? You know, you, you can't control the fact that your, your daddy's dead, but you, you learn 10 vocabulary words every day, right? Uh, father said I was unequipped to meet life because I have no sense of humor. I lit a cigarette and said I didn't think a sense of humor was of any use in a real pinch. Well, he'll find differently. Uh, let's see. Um, I said I imagine her father had had a quite an extraordinary vocabulary. Oh, yes, quite. I felt a punch on my upper arm from Charles's direction. What did one wall say to the other wall? He asked shrilly. It's a riddle. I rolled my eyes and said I gave up. Meet you at the corner, he shrieked and ran off. It went over biggest with Charles himself. It struck him as unbearably funny. He tells the same riddle to everyone he meets. He has a fit every single time. It's one of the best riddles I've heard, though, I said, watching Charles. May I inquire how you were employed before entering the army? I said I hadn't been employed at all. I'd only been out of college a year, but I'd like to think of myself as a professional short story writer. So a little autobiography in there. My father wrote beautifully. I'm saving a number of his letters for posterity. I said it sounded like a very good idea. I happened to be looking at her enormous face, chronographic looking wristwatch again. I asked her if it belonged to her father. She looked down at her wrist solemnly. Yes, it did. He gave it to me just before Charles and I were evacuated. She's not even at her home, right? Self-consciously, she took her hands off the table, saying, Pure as memento, of course. It doesn't mean anything, right? She guided a conversation in a different direction. I'd be extremely flattered if you'd write a story exclusively for me sometime. I'm an avid reader. Well, does she get her story? Does she get it? This is it, right? I told her I certainly would. Would if I could. I said I wasn't terribly prolific. It doesn't have to be terribly prolific. He gets her on that one, right? Just so it isn't childish and silly. I prefer stories about squalor. Well, she knows a lot about squalor, doesn't she? I've been an orphan and in a war. Squalor? About what? Squalor. I'm extremely interested in squalor. I was about to press her for more details, but I felt Charles pinching me hard on my arm. I turned to him wincing slightly. He was standing straight right next to me. What did one wall say to the other wall? He asked. You've asked him that. Now stop it. Ignoring his sister and stepping up on my feet. You ever kid do that so they're bigger? Charles repeated the key question. I noticed that his necktie knot wasn't adjusted properly. I slid it up into place. Then looking him straight in the corner suggested, 
meet you at the corner. Good idea or bad idea? Awful, right? The instant I'd said it, I wished I hadn't. Charles's mouth fell open. I felt as if I'd struck it open. He stepped down off my foot and with white-hot dignity walked over to his own table without looking back. He's furious, as they said. He has a violent temper. My mother had a propensity to spoil him. My father was the only one who didn't spoil him. Anyway, so uh, they, it's time for her to go, and they shake hands. And as I'd suspected, it was a nervous hand, damp at the palm. So you see, she, the way she's coping, I mean, she is a wreck inside. But with that British stoicism, she's coping beautifully. Okay, fine, just fine, fine, just fine. But as a writer, he can tell. She bites her nails, her hands wet, and she's a little, little bit OCD, right? Perfect posture, crosses her feet perfectly, learns those vocabulary words. And I bet she makes straight A's at school. What do you think? We come here again and uh, say, do you think you'll be coming here in the immediate future? We come here every Saturday after choir practice. I said I'd like nothing better, that unfortunately I was pretty sure I wouldn't be able to make it again. Anyway, so she crossed one foot over the other and looking down aligned the toes of the shoes. There's that little control. It's about control, right? You can't control the big things like losing your dad. So by God, you better control the, the little things. I knew somebody, I knew a girl, when she turned on the light switch, she had to do it, she had to do it 13 times every time. I had a relative that when he brushed his teeth, it was for exactly 45 minutes every time. I don't get it. I don't, he had gum trouble. Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. And anyway, she looked at me and said, would you like for me to write to you? I write extremely articulate letters for a person. Uh, why is she a good letter writer? Because her daddy was, right? Okay. So she, she really is falling for him. Why does she like him? Why does she like the nameless narrator here? He's, okay, he's a writer. Okay. And he's a soldier. Okay. And he's, uh, and he's nice to her little brother, right? Okay. He reminds her of her daddy. I'd love it. I took out a pencil and wrote down my APO number. Okay, and so they're, they're walking out, okay, and Charles led the way, limping tragically like a man with one leg several inches shorter than the other. He did not look over at me. Esme waved back. Less than a minute later, Esme came back into the tea room, dragging Charles behind her by the sleeve of his coat. Charles would like to kiss you goodbye. I immediately put down my cup and said that was very nice, but was she sure? Yes. <laughs> she let go of Charles's sleeve and gave him a little vigorous shove in my direction. He came forward, his face livid, and gave me a loud, wet smacker just below the right ear. Following this ordeal, he started to make a beeline for the door in a less sentimental way of life. But I caught the half belt at the back of his coat held on to it and asked him, what did one wall say to the other wall? His face lit up. Meet you at the corner! He shrieked and raced out of the room, possibly in hysterics. Esme was standing again with ankles crossed. You're quite sure you won't forget to write that story for me? It doesn't have to be exclusively for me. It can... I said there's absolutely no chance I'd forget I told her I hadn't written, I'd never written a story for anybody, but it seemed like exactly the right time to get down to it. Make it extremely squalid and moving. Are you at all acquainted with squalor? 
I said, not exactly, but I was getting better acquainted with it in one form or another. D-Day, that'll do it, won't it? All the time. And I do my best to come up to her specifications. Goodbye, she said. I hope you return from the war with all your faculties intact. And then we get an abrupt break in the story. It almost breaks into two. This is the squalid or moving part of the story. And the scene changes. The people change too. I'm still around, but from here on in, for reasons I'm not at liberty to disclose, I've disguised myself so cunningly that even the cleverest reader will fail to recognize me. Well, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. It was about 10.30 at night in Bavaria, several weeks after VE Day, Victory in Europe. Staff Sergeant X, who we'll see quickly as the narrator, was in his room on the second floor of a civilian room in which he and nine other American soldiers had been quartered. Uh, he was seated at a fold on a folding wooden chair and a small, messy-looking writing table with a paperback overseas novel before him which he was now having great trouble reading. The trouble lay with him, not the novel. So even though it seems like a break, you've got a lot of foreshadowing. Begin the story, he loved to read. Okay, Now he can't read because of being one of the first boys in there, the, tro the horror of World War II, their D-Day. He can't read, right? But he was a young man who had not come through the war with all his faculties intact, quoting Esme. And for more than an hour, he had been triple reading paragraphs. With his hand, he shielded his eyes for a moment against, against the harsh, waddy glare. So he's like where Esme was, okay? He is a wreck inside. She just hid it a lot better. She's a brave little girl. He took a cigarette from a pack on the table and lit it with fingers that bumped gently and incessantly against one another. He had been chain-smoking for weeks. His gums bled at the slightest pressure the tip of his tongue, and he seldom stopped experimenting. It was a little game he played, sometimes by the hour. So you see, like Asma, he's gotten a little bit OCD too, just in different ways. Then abruptly, familiarly, and as usual with no warning, he thought he felt his mind dislodge itself and teeter like insecure luggage on an overhead rack. He quickly did what he'd been doing for weeks to set things right. He pressed his hands hard against his temples. He held them tight for a moment. His hair needed cutting, and it was dirty. When he let go of his head, he's in despair. What I tell my students, you know, he's, he's not sad. Sad's when things are bad, they're going to get better. He's not depressed. Things are bad, they're going to be bad a long time, but they're going to get better. He's in despair. One of the strongest words we have. Things are bad, and you don't see a way out. That's when bad stuff happens, right? When he let go of his head, X began to stare at the surface of the writing table, which was a catch-all for at least two dozen unopened letters and at least five or six unopened packages, all addressed to him. He's not even reading his mail. He reached behind the debris and picked out a book that stood against the wall. It was a book by Goebbels that belonged to the uh, unmarried daughter of the family that up to a few weeks earlier had been living in the house. She was a low official in the Nazi party, but high enough to, to be arrested. X, her, X himself had arrested her. Now, for the third time since he had returned from the hospital that day, he opened the woman's book and read the brief inscription on the flyleaf, written in ink, in German, in a small, hopelessly sincere handwriting, were the words, Dear God, life is hell. 
So, so he's a red writer and a reader, okay? So he reads this book to find some little break, something to make him feel better, and he finds that note from her. He said, well, great. I feel so much better now. <laughs> Nothing led up to or away from it. Alone on the page and in the sickly stillness of the room, the words appeared to have the stature of an uncontestable, even classic indictment. X stared at the page for several minutes, trying against heavy odds not to be taken in. Then with far more zeal than he had done anything in weeks, he picked up a pencil stub and wrote down under the inscription in English, Fathers and teachers, I ponder what is hell. I maintain that it is the suffering of being unable to love. How does he fight back with words? Okay, that he's a writer. So he fights back against despair with words. He started to write Dostoevsky's name under the inscription, but saw with fright that ran through his whole body that what he had written was almost entirely illegible. He shut the book. He's a writer and he can't even read his own handwriting. His hand's shaking so badly. So now he starts reading some, <clears throat> tries reading some old letters, and, <clears throat> and then his roommate comes in named Clay. Clay's a real jerk. He Clay comes in and says, "You ought to." I'm gonna clean up the language a little bit. We're in church, right? And it's his Salinger. <clears throat> you ought to see your darn hands, boy. You've got the shakes. You know, you look awful. Everybody said, "You look awful." Thank you. I feel much better now. All right. <clears throat> X got his cigarette lit, nodded, and said, "Clay had a real eye for detail." Remember what X said at the beginning was that humor is not important in a pinch. He finds that it is. Uh, what Jimmy Buffett said, if we couldn't laugh, we'd all go insane, right? Okay. No kidding. Hey, I darn near fainted when I saw you at the hospital. You looked like a darn corpse. How much weight you lose? And he changed. Have you heard from Loretta? Loretta was Clay's girl. They intended to get married and... and uh, so anyway, X has been helping write love letters and stuff. Uh, I wrote Loretta. Oh, let's see. Did you know the darn the side of your face is jumping all over the place? X said he knew all about it and covered his tick with his hand. I wrote Loretta. You had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. She's interested as heck in all that stuff. She's majoring in psychology. She says nobody gets a nervous breakdown just from the war and all. She says you probably were in unstable like your whole darn life. I mean, a little thing like a war couldn't drive anybody crazy. You must have been crazy from the beginning. X bridged his eyes, hands over his eyes from the light and said that Loretta's insight into things was always a joy. I mean, he turned desperately to sense of humor, right? Anyway, so they go on and Clay finally leaves and X suddenly felt sick. And grab the wastebasket just in time. I'm some, you've been just so sad. I mean, you, you get physically ill from it. And so anyway, uh, so X is all by himself there. And X picked up a portable, his portable typewriter from the floor. He made space for it on the messy table surface, pushing aside the collapsed pile of unopened letters and packing and packages. So he turns again to his craft. He turns back. To, to, to words. Well, maybe I can use a, a typewriter. And it's getting to be now I'm having to explain to my students what a typewriter is. That usually, you, I'm down to about half the class. Oh, yeah, I saw one in the attic now. Okay. He thought if he wrote a letter to an old friend of his in New York, there might be some quick, however slight, therapy in it for him. But he couldn't in, insert the typewriter into the roller properly. 
His fingers were shaking so violently now. Bless his heart. He can't, he can't even load up the typewriter. He put his hands down at his sides for a minute, then tried again, but finally crumpled the note paper in his hand. He was aware he ought, he was aware he ought to get the wastebasket out of the room. But instead of doing anything about it, he put his arms on the typewriter and rested his head again, closing his eyes. He said, I'm just done. You know, you just reach up, I'm tired of hurting. I'm just tired. I fought and I fought and I just can't do it anymore. And I, I hope you have not been in that such position. I have. But you just don't quit. I've never been good at quitting. I think that, that distance running in me. You know, I just I never never knew how to quit. So don't don't quit, right? That's what Churchill said. Never quit. Never, 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 never. That was his whole speech and he sat down. That was, that was it. Pretty good advice. A few now we get to what Flannery calls the heart of the story. All that's to get you this moment right here. A few throbbing minutes later, when he opened his eyes. He found himself squinting at a small, unopened package wrapped in green paper. See, we had Charles's eyes, right? And green's that magical color, right? It had probably slipped off the pile when he'd made space for the typewriter. He saw that it had been readdressed several times. He could make out on just one side of the package at least three of his old numbers. He opened the package without any interest, without even looking at the return address. He opened it by burning the string with a lighted match. He, he was more interested in watching the string burn all the way down than open the package, but he, he finally did. Inside the box, a note, written in ink, lay on top of a small object wrapped in tissue paper. He picked out the note and read it. 17, blah, blah, row, blah, blah, Devon, June 7th, the day after D-Day, right? Dear Sergeant X, who's this from? Who's our letter writer, right? Somehow sensing he was in trouble, right? I hope you will forgive, dear Sergeant X, I hope you will forgive me for having taken 38 days to begin our correspondence. She's nothing not precise, right? She can control that. But I have been extremely busy as my aunt has undergone streptococcus of the throat. Is that a real thing? Streptococcus, okay. So like strep, that strep throat. Okay, well, all I heard was strep around my house. It nearly perished, and I've been justifiably saddled with one responsibility after another. However, I've thought of you frequently, and on the extremely pleasant afternoon we spent in each other's company on April 30th, 1944, between 3.45 and 4.15 p.m., <laughs> in case it slipped your mind. We're all tremendously excited and overawed about D-Day, and I only hope they'll bring about a swift termination of the war. Charles and I are both quite concerned about you. We hope you are not among those who first made the first initial assault upon the Contentant Peninsula. Worrying, I'm sure he was. First one's in. Please reply as speedily as possible. My warmest regards to your wife. Sincerely yours, Esme. So she fell in love with him. Well, just a little crush there in 30 minutes. P.S. I'm taking the liberty of enclosing my wristwatch, which you may keep in your possession for the duration of your conflict. She sends her most prized possession. Whose is it? Her dead daddy's. Her mo she sends her most prized possession. This guy that she met for 30 minutes, but he reminded of her daddy. 
He was a soldier and a writer, and he was nice to her little brother. And he gave her a happy 30 minutes in her desperately lonely little life. I did not observe whether you were wearing one during our brief association, but this one's extremely waterproof and shockproof. And I'm quite certain you will use it to a greater advantage in these difficult days than I ever can, and that you accept it as a lucky talisman. Charles, whom I'm teaching to read and write, and whom I'm finding an extremely intelligent novice, wishes to add a few words. Please write as soon as you have the time and inclination. And then we get a little note from P.S. from Charles. <clears throat> hello, 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 hello. Hello, 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 hello. Love and kisses. Charles, and he misspells his name, but he's young, right? We're not through with him yet. It was a long time before X could set the note aside, let alone lift Esme's father's wristwatch out of the box. And when he did finally lift it out, he saw that, that his crystal had been broken in transit. Why have it cracked? Cracked watch, you think? Symbolism, anything? Do what? Yeah, they're both a little cracked. They're both damaged. We're all a little cracked, aren't we, right? Some of us hide it better than others. He wondered if the watch was otherwise undamaged. I bet this one ain't great like they are. But he hadn't the courage to wind it and find out. <clears throat> he just sat with it in his hand for another long period. Then suddenly, almost ecstatically, he felt sleepy. You take a really sleepy man, Esme, and he always stands a chance of again becoming a man with all his fact, with all his F-A-C-U-L-T-I-E-S intact. All right, so why does he spell faculties? She spelled slain, right? Okay. And the last thing she ever said to him is, I hope you return to your faculties intact, which he doesn't, right? Okay. And so... <clears throat> He has just only he has just given up, and then out of nowhere, this little girl sends her most prized possession, and he he realizes that somebody loves him. And you know, if we realize, if we know that somebody loves us, we've got a shot. You know what? We she she's the real psychiatrist, right? Loretta's the quack psychiatrist, but she's a real one. She knows that all we need is if we know that somebody loves us, then then we can make it. We can get out of this thing alive there. And what was she trying to do? At the beginning of the story, she was trained to become what? I'm tr and I, because her daddy chastised her. I'm training to become more compassionate. Did she get there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she got there. Man, just wonderful. And so he's going to have that healing sleep that Matthew Arnold talked about. You know, sometimes you just got to shut down for repairs. We've all been there, right? Okay. I have fought the fight. Sometimes I just got to go to bed. <laughs> I've just got to go down and, and shut down a little bit and then I'm going to be better there. Okay. All right. So how'd the story start? What's the beginning of the story? A wedding. A wedding. Who's getting married? Esme, Esme right? So she made it. X made it. He got married, right? She got married. It's okay. She's okay. She fought through the despair. Okay. Now, what did he say about... And she invited him to the wedding. What did he... Is he going? What did he say to begin the story? Yeah, he wants to. But he's not, right? Okay, I get it. I get it. He's had the discussion with his wife. All right. Okay, sweetheart. I'd like to take our life savings and go to the wedding in England of this cute little girl that I met in England. And his wife's going to say, let me think about it. No. 
Alright? It's just like that, alright? I hope he comes back in the next page and goes through and says, Look, I get it. I understand. But I've got to go. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for her. So if you're going to get mad, just start yelling. But I've got to go. I owe her. And I asked my kids, what two wedding presents does he need to bring? What should be his wedding presents? And they're going to be the two best she gets. The watch and and the story. Okay? And that'd be just supposed to be perfect. So I, I, I like to think that he went. I, I really I hope he did. Okay? And so... The Dostoevsky quotation, what is hell being unable to love? Well, he found love, and she found it too. And so she got her story, right? And you've got uh, all that foreshadowing we talked about. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful story. Have you all been to St. Marigliese? Anybody been there in France? The first town liberated there. I, I was there on one of the anniversaries, and they they still had the you know have the dummy up there caught up in the church steeple and everything. And uh, there was a a paratrooper. Uh, let's say when they when they liberated, just uh, these little boys from this country they'd never seen before. And there was a, a French peasant woman just holding on to him and crying, says, "Please don't leave me. Please don't leave me." And he said, "I'm not going to leave you." Here's where I die. I mean, what what brave people there! It's a it's it's a great visit. And uh, we I went into the church there. There's one little church, and I got little cards. Okay, I should have taken a picture, but of the stained glass windows in the little church in Saint Mary Glees, and uh, you can take a look at these when the bell rings when we go to class. But uh, it's, if you look at it, it's got paratroopers coming out of the sky. I've never been to a church with paratroopers coming out of the sky. So they love the Americans, at least the older generation French. They still do, don't they? I mean, I've, I've been into village, uh, into little shops, and they find out I'm an American. They, say, they give me a, you know, they give me a hug and stuff. And, you know, we... Uh, we uh, we caught a real break with D-Day, as awful as it was. You know, they're, they're, the one in charge was Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox. He was the best they had. And uh, But the day we attacked, June 6th, it was one of the two days that he, wa- he wasn't there because it was his wife's birthday. And he was back in England with his wife's birthday. Okay? And so... Uh, when we came in, you know, our tanks didn't swim. Our tanks went straight to the bottom. And so <clears throat> the Germans were, you know, were saying, release the, the Panzer Division. Bring on the Tiger tanks. And they were just wiped us out. We had nothing to stop Tiger tanks there, okay? But there are only two people who could release the Tiger tanks, okay? One was Erwin Rommel, who wasn't there. That's before cell phones, okay? The kids have a heart. They, their eyes get like that, right? Okay. I tell them about always leaving. I never left home without 50 cents. You ever keep 50 cents with you? Because I knew I could walk 10 miles to the next uh, stop and get a, find a payphone, make a collect call to dad and say, Dad, my butt's in trouble. So come and get me. Um, and the other one's a guy named Adolf Hitler. And Hitler had gone to bed with explicit instructions, do not wake me up before noon. Okay? And so the Germans are said, wake Hitler up! Wake Hitler up! No, guys, no, you wake Hitler up. I saw what happened to the last dude that woke him up. So the tanks did not come till noon, and so we caught a real break there. Uh, well, anyway, it's just a beautiful, just, I, I love the story. Listen to what one of my ninth graders wrote. This was in class, okay? A ninth grader on his test. For Sar- and I'll end here. For Sergeant X, the watch is a lighthouse for his soul. For it prevents his soul from being lost. 
It guides his soul back to his body to prevent the loss of his humanity to the beast that is war. In this way, the watch in Esme saved mankind from the greatest defeat the Germans could have dealt the world. That defeat was to turn everyone into them, to turn all others into the vicious, soulless killers that were the Nazi war machine. That's not bad for in class on a test, is it? And so I, I'm so lucky to be have this teaching and just I know after 44 years to still love what I'm doing. You still got kids cranking it, and I've got I've got alums, I've got a current there glutton for punishment. Come on, your dad made you come, right? <laughs> Well, listen, thank you very much. And for the next month, I'm going to be teaching Flannery O'Connor, and I just love Flannery. Yes, ma'am. Could I just make a tie-in? Yeah, go right ahead. Bible, maybe? Yeah, yeah, help. Build another little bridge. I'll hear about this. I'm trying. Yeah, what? Love and salvation. Isn't that in the religion somewhere? What? God is the creator of our humanity. Yeah, right. And he is the author of the word that is sent to us to save us right. in our humanity. You were talking about writers trying yeah, to oh save yes, humanity. Yes, well, yes. The, the, he's the great writer. Of our humanity, and he did write a book called the Bible yeah. to save our humanity. And hell is a place, God is a source of love, and to be separated from God is the definition of hell. Right. there is no love. That's right. And exactly. it is God's love that ultimately saves us. So he's the great so letter writer. You could say symbolism played out through this story, which could reflect to God being the author of our humanity and the Bible and the source of love. There you go. <laughs> That's why she gets the A and nobody else. Hey, listen, y'all have a great day. Thank you very much. I hope to see y'all. Thank you for coming there. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.